Hey everybody, it's Christine. Welcome back to The Rose Woman. Way back in the summer, I was able to do a Zoom call with Lee Weinraub, our guest today. And it was all kinds of messed up from a visual standpoint, but we had such a lovely conversation that I extracted out the audio and am presenting it today for the first time as a podcast. But sometimes you meet someone in your life, um, like I did with Lee, Someone said, oh, you two must connect. And she walked into the bar space at the uh, an inn under the Golden Gate Bridge. And we were already a small group. And she just took my breath away with her freshness and her inspiration. So I was expecting that in the dialogue around, you know, how to stay up when the world seems to be falling apart around you, that she would have good things to share And she also became very vulnerable in this interview that even for people who speak to inspiration and speak to hacking your mind and changing your habits, that there comes a time just to feel your feelings. And I've been thinking a lot about that in other contexts too, like there's a lot to be sad about uh, and just to let it be that way, that the sort of hatred and, and things that are in the dominant media narrative are really hard to take some days and that when an emotion is hard to take it's tempting to steal up and to detach and to protect the little seed that is your tender heart and sometimes that's helpful it's a survival mechanism but there comes a time as adults that we just have to feel our sad and feel our grief and let ourselves be in the discomfort When we don't and we walk away, if we don't feel it, we can never be fully with the cost of the negativity or the cost of the thing that has happened and we don't learn from it. So much like spiritual bypassing where you don't feel leaving or detaching is another way of not feeling. But the job of us as grown spiritual beings embodied in this lifetime in relationship to one another and leading in the world is to feel it all and get up and lead anyway. Get up and be with our family. Get up and love in the face of everything. So we're a lot lighter in the pod, but I just want to lay it out there that no matter what you're feeling, accept it all as it waves over you and allow it to be so. And you might find that if you don't resist it and you just feel it, But on the other side of that is another wave of lightness or another wave of something. So I want to be super appreciative for all of the people out there who are holding a vision for what's possible for us. And if you're one of those people, we need you right now. Thank you for your presence. And please welcome with me my friend, Lee Weinraub. Hey, it's Christine from Rosebud Woman, coming to you from my swanky 1970s pool house, complete with tiki bar. I'm visiting a friend, and the place is quite spectacular. hasn't really been touched since 1978. And I am so happy that my friend, Lee Weinraub, who is the founder of a company called Mind in Motion, is joining us today to talk about managing your insides uh, during times of uncertainty. And who knows where else we'll go? So please welcome 
the mistress of motivation, as I think I called her in the newsletter, Lee Weinraub. That's my drum roll. Um, no one ever called me that. I like it. <laughs> so can you say a little bit more about who you are and what you do? Sure. So sort of beginning of my life, I started out first and foremost as a hardcore tennis player obsessed with hitting that yellow fuzzy ball against the side of my house from four year old to about to four years old to about eight. And then got very competitive in tennis, learned by about 15 that I had quite a temper and had a whole lot of passion, but had a hard time regulating the intensity of my emotion and got very fascinated with psychology, probably because I needed some sports psychology and sports performance coaching. And I guess what we consider now mindfulness, I didn't have a whole lot of mindfulness back in my competitive tennis days. Then went to school, played college tennis, was completely obsessed with uh, mastering that craft and had a dream of winning Wimbledon. Didn't quite make that happen. Uh, had a bunch of injuries and realized that I was very, very interested in studying psychology. Ended up going to grad school after I coached tennis for five years at Dartmouth and Northwestern. Loved everything about coaching. Got to work with these highly motivated, high-performing, but oftentimes um, very dysregulated young people. And I became very interested in kind of the art of communicating motivation to different personalities. We have a team of 10 people. They all learn differently. They all uh, process information differently. They have different demons when they're competing. They have profound, uh, profoundly different life stories. And realized that while I loved the, the practicality of the coaching and the motivation, I wanted to understand more kind of in-depth psychology. So went super classic, studied psychodynamic and psychoanalytic theory at Northwestern, a whole lot of Freud, a um, whole lot of Jung. And I'm so grateful for that education, but realized quickly into my career that while it was fascinating to have conversations with people about their past, and, and listen and learn about their childhood and how that affected the person they became. I was a, a result straight, thrived on the, the, the instantaneous wins where you could kinesthetically feel like, aha, I, I get that, I experienced that, I want to keep doing it. So something about the kinesthetics of sports and the idea that athletics require consistent practice led me to think differently about how I was going to help my clients. And I, on a whim one day and a very cold day in Chicago, decided to take one of my clients for a walk along the lake and knew this is what I want to do. I want to do walking and talking therapy. I saw that self-consciousness dissipated and something about the, the nature, seeing different visuals and just putting one foot in front of the other was helping people do something to solve problems it physiologically felt invigorating. So even though life can be really daunting, as we all know right now, and it can be heavy and challenging and unfair and anxiety producing, the walk in and of itself was chemically a win. And so people wanted to keep walking. And then this idea of walking and talking and kind of thinking about life through the lens of an athlete gave birth to so many other things, one of them being uh, an inspirational apparel brand 
with words upside down to get people to look at the word, to cue a reminder to practice the word. And now I do a bunch of speaking about all these kind of creative approaches I've taken to help people. And I have products I design, again, to remind people to look within, to practice what they know that they really want to do. And blankets for cancer patients to help them access a deep source of strength during their darkest hours. And probably the thing I love most is taking walk and talks all over the country, just having one-on-one -on -one intense dialogue with people and learning about how to make sense of all the crazy shit that goes on inside of us. Yeah, I think that you, you have stayed true to that original walk and talk with your apparel brand. It is truly like a mind at rest, a mind that's laying on a couch is very inward and above the heart and a mind that's attached to a moving body um, has access to different kinds of intelligences. And that's just, and, and you even went on and named the apparel brand Mind in Motion. So you didn't stray far from your original insight. I think that's fantastic. So um, I met you, I don't know, maybe six years ago or something. And you had at that point um, been new to the Bay Area and you were doing these walk and talks and launching the company. And then I got to see you at work at your, I think at Miraval and take one of your classes. And I, I think I was um, stunned to see how you got to the heart of my global issue, watching me try to hit a tennis ball and get frustrated, like, like not doing it really well. Was, it was like that one action that I was taking was a mirror for how I responded to failure in every aspect of my life. And uh, that really stayed with me. Like how do you um, stay with something in a gentle way and like be kind to yourself if you make an error and try again and learn and adjust. But we're in a particular time now where all of those um, micro programming, the inner architecture of our young life has, is getting plenty of opportunity to show up. There are triggers galore. So I wonder if you could speak a little bit to what you're seeing in your client base and in your customer base uh, around the triggers of the, of the current era. Um, just to, to, it's going to correlate to what's going on right now, but reminding me sort of my, my roots of, of what I taught on a tennis court with really no, I didn't, I didn't even imagine bringing my psychology theory to the tennis court, but it was amazing how watching reactivity on a tennis yeah. court yes. taught me so much about people's instincts. And I was known back in Miraval for screaming on the tennis court, don't judge, adjust. Because every time you'd see the, the outcome of a, where a ball would land instantaneously, a person would have um, sort of a preconditioned reaction to whether that shot was good or bad, and they'd make a whole story in, the, in their head, and they, it would play out. You could see it on their body. And I think it's very relevant. The context today is much more serious than a, yeah. than a tennis ball. But this idea that in the span of a day, especially these days, we're kind of living in, in a cesspool of... Um, of, of triggers and of stimuli that are causing constant rises in stress um, and, and anxiety in frustration and worry that we, that fear and the unknown have been living in lockdown in our homes with us and are sleeping in bed with us is, is um, so consuming for our psyche and our, and our stomachs. So learning how to manage all of that in a practical way, and a lot of what I love to help people with is having a, having a high level discussion of understanding what's happening 
and having a curiosity about why, why you react the way you do, but we need practical solutions to some of these things. And every, every conversation I've had the last three months in some way have been about how do I implement having control? How do I get better at exercising the controls that I know I'm in charge of, but it feels so hard to do. Mm-hmm. And Viktor Frankl has been known, he's famous for talking about how there are going to be stimuli in your life and you're going to have react responses to the stimuli, but that there's a space between the trigger and your reaction. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you, Christine, but I can tell you that in the last few weeks, the space between triggers and reactions for me have been about a nanosecond. Um, I've had much more intense hijacked reactions so just teaching people first and foremost how to notice like really acutely notice the trigger something as simple as that Um, and getting people to be paying attention to the types of people that are triggering them maybe that the watching the news is triggering them maybe certain things on social media is triggering them maybe the sun going down is a trigger maybe waking up and looking at your phone is a trigger but i've basically had thousands of conversations these last few weeks with just teaching people the skill of noticing the trigger so intensely, so acutely that they're not losing to the trigger. They see it happening before it's happened. It's kind of like as an athlete, you have to have anticipation of of the next shot or the next snap. You have to anticipate what's, what's going to stir you. And it's amazing. This is a, this is what happens here. I think you might know that I had gone into San Quentin on the victim offender program. That's a one year program that teaches violent offenders to insert a pause between reaction and, and response between trigger and response. So they're doing the same thing with people who literally were so not in control of their reactivity that they did violence to another person. And it totally works. Those guys, when they get out after doing a year of daily tap management, breathing into it, learning somatic modification, can leave prison and never come back, like 0% recidivism. So anybody can learn it if you do what you're talking about. I, I actually haven't felt the um, increase, uh, the gap. I, I, I have felt that the slowdown has given me an opportunity to, to be more responsive to life uh, that I'm not in the car all the time. I'm not distracted. I'm not trying to drive and answer text messages. You know, that basically the spaciousness and the slowdown has been giving me more response space. But it's caused other problems uh, for me. One is I was so identified with the story of busy, the story of mattering, the story of being out among people, having dialogues and conversations with women, making things happen. That the story of being was a hard one, you know? So I feel like that there's some, and then also we came face to face with all of the relationship questions that, you know, maybe if you live with children or you live with a boyfriend or a lover or a spouse or a girlfriend or whatever, that, you know, you, that all of those relationships were suddenly under a spotlight and the less physical space you have to get away from one another. Like I'm lucky uh, in a way because we live at this 28 bed meditation center and suddenly there were no other guests. So I could literally go from room to room to have my privacy. But I have friends who are in, uh, you know, studio apartments in New York with their spouses. They're like, I'm out of here. <laughs> so the, the, the shelter in place component, um, the combination of slowing down can touch all kinds of triggers that 
um, you know, around identity and other things like that. I mean, I hope I'm not the only one who's seeing that. Couldn't agree more with you. And having listened to so many different people's stories and so many different circumstances, every single circumstance has offered its own fair share of challenges. Mm -hmm. uh, of all of the creatures to be sharing space with, having a puppy has been certainly the greatest Aww. dose of, of like. <laughs> But I think I've heard a lot of people share what, what you said, which is something about the slowed pace of life that we have no control now, we kind of have to slow down, has reduced people's reactivity and the intensity of the reactivity and the frequency in which they've gotten that sort of reaction. Um, I've heard that a lot. And I would say for me, I actually had a, I work with the Zen Buddhist monk and I have these amazing conversations with him. And he said to me at one point, he's like, you realize it took a pandemic for you to learn the lesson of slowing down. And I was telling him that even the way I brush my teeth, sometimes I brush it kind of hastily and there's toothpaste. And I started noticing I was even brushing my teeth differently. I was even cleaning my sink differently because my psyche, and I wasn't doing it consciously, it just kind of happened my psyche was under less pressure. And this idea that we are, we are kind of almost forced into the experience of being instead of doing, that's, that's been a foreign concept for me. I've been a, and, and now I'm like, I kind of like this case. I kind of like experiencing being, but I was, I was almost incapable of being previous to the circumstance. And if there's any high, higher, learning for me through this process. I know I want to continue to commit to being the kind of person who can integrate doing, like being super driven, but also chilling out and being present. So hard to do. You were talking about the noticing um, what triggers you or noticing your teeth brushing. And I was thinking about how I have so many unconscious patterns that I didn't even notice until we started doing all of this technology in Zoom. The fact that I click my teeth, that I look away, that I hunch, you know, I was totally unaware of that because I have no mirrors. And so how s slow do you have to go? Like I, I, there's an exercise that I did in my training um, where you're walking at this unbearably slow pace. Like you're walking and placing one foot and, and you're noticing how your weight transfers between each of the corners of the feet and how that resonates up through the knee and the belly. And it was anxiety producing to stop and go that slow and notice. And then just the process of slowing down allowed feeling to penetrate and an awareness of the vehicle that we live in to become to come to the conscious level. So the slowdown has a, an impact on the my embodiment, my the spaciousness for noticing, um, a little bit of shock and maybe even a little shame at the things that I wasn't noticing before. But it also depends on what we were noticing before as a culture. So I don't think it's an accident that you have people sitting home for eight or ten weeks. And then when they have the spaciousness to like consider that their fellow citizens are getting murdered by the police on the regular, and there's always this, oh, ain't it awful, and then things go back to normal, or that there's a mass shooting on the regular and things go back to normal. 
that for the first time we have the spaciousness to examine and to respond without being distracted by, you know, captivation capitalism or whatever, like the kind of capitalism that keeps you so busy, you don't notice how you brush your teeth. 100%. But I, this is like all intertwined if one wants to speak about a blessing in it. I also believe this is why the uh, government wants us to get back to work so quickly. Because a people who has time to examine their soul, their life, their values, their priorities, their relationship, the way their feet hit the ground is not a people who's going to um, stay with the status quo for very long. So, Spot on. <laughs> Spot on. Gives me chills. And, and uh, when, I, uh, when I hear you say that, I, I feel, and I can only do my part, um, I'm only responsible for me, but I, I feel so, such a sense of responsibility and passion for, I, I want people to learn these lessons. I want to learn these lessons and I never want to go back to the old version of myself. 100%. And I don't know whether it's going to take, you know, writing a declaration and bolstering it around my house to remind me. I know, I know conversation, like when you and I hang and we talk about this, it reminds me, it's a great reminder, but I, I feel like there must be a call to action for every single person to really examine and, and take a stand on like how they're going to show up differently, what they want to do more of, what they want to do less of, and that hopefully each person has accountability and support to call them on and say, are you, are, are you living those declarations? Are you, are you living that stand? I want to sit down with my friends, and I'm doing it certainly with colleagues, and make promises to myself and not let myself return back to that crazy, busy, um, mindless, sleepwalking autopilot version of Lee that's going and going and spinning plates. So don't let me. I won't. I won't let you. I, I won't let you. And then the other piece, um, when, we, when we come into this, there's a lot of shaming going on for people who are doing um, what's being called virtue signaling. Uh, and I prefer to call it values broadcasting, that even if you are only saying it and your behavior hasn't caught up yet, it's giving you a moral direction from your, your inner, your internal compass is beginning to point. And once you start pointing publicly, eventually you will see where your steps are out of integrity with your pointing and you will adjust. It might take you a year or two years or five years, but when the moral compass is starting to say publicly to other people, this is what I believe in. It's not just to be popular in the short term. It's because something in you knows that that's the right direction. And so the more uh, people that get on the bandwagon with uh, supporting these changes, a slower pace of life, more authenticity, true equality and justice, rejecting the histories of oppression of the country, shifting economic systems. I mean, these are all strange things for two company founders to talk about, but we're both in control of our organizations. We are not beholden to banks. And in that ownership structure, as women entrepreneurs, you have an amazing opportunity to hire right, to pay right, to do donations, to support the kind of economic structures that you would like to see emerge. And so there's also in the midst of like, I can stay present while I'm annoyed that this is the third time today I'm having to clean up somebody's dishes who should be cleaning it up on their own. I can also stay present to like a new world is being born and here's where my values lie and here's how I can create less dissonance 
between my daily actions and those values. And uh, that's why this has been probably the most interesting and exciting 12 weeks in a long time. Because everybody that I know who is bright and capable of every race and economic class has the time to examine what kind of world they want to see born. You are so right. I love it. Yeah. The radical granny emerges. <laughs> radical granny. You're, you're right. And when you, when you went on that beautiful soliloquy, which I love listening to you because you have such a way with words, um, you have such a gift. What was coming up in me is like the, the more we, we teach these things, talk about these things, think about these things, it's a practice. It's a practice. We will live our way into becoming those people only if we practice uh, incorporating this. And I, I talk to people all the time and they'll say, well, I, I get it logically. Yeah, I get what you're saying in here, but I don't feel it. I don't have it in me. Right. And I say, okay, well, the, a thousand more times of, of saying this and listening to this and say more and the more often you feel it in here, it's going, it's going to immerse into here. But you have to challenge your beliefs. You have to think about how you think. You have to cultivate new ways of thinking. And the more often you do it, it will become your character. You don't, you don't, you don't change, you don't evolve into a higher level of being without practicing all the time. And I agree that the last 12 weeks we have had this major awakening of consciousness and people are actually practicing new, new competencies, new ways of showing up in the world. This I want to art ask of you about that. I want to ask you about um, enchantment. Like in enchant, you're uh, basically casting a spell on yourself with words. And that's exactly how you've approached your, um, your apparel line. But can you talk a little bit more about the specific actions of, of what might have been called affirmations or positive mantra or visualizing or enchantment? Like how, how does it actually work in a, in a sort of therapeutic or behavioral change process? That's a really good question. That's a really big question. <laughs> um, I'm not so sure, even though, even though a bulk of my apparel company has this amazing mantra and I try to get people to read the mantra and that kind of a, a big piece of the philosophy of my whole brand is the power of words. And the, the reason I wrote these words upside down and I specifically chose certain verbs that I had, I kept hearing, these are the actions that people are saying they need more of started with the word breathe. Then it became the word move. Then it became the word focus. Then it became gratitude. Um, it became strength. All of these words, just, just my idea that if I put a word on a t-shirt or I would text a client and say, here's the word of the week for you, think about this word, like pull, pull some level of your brain into this message and try to incorporate it into your body. Just, just my getting a person to think about a word, to stare at a word, that alone would make a person kind of tip towards having a little bit more likelihood that they'll practice it. As far as a session, a, a, a coaching session, how do I get a person to practice a way of thinking? First, I have to get them aware of what they've been thinking. Most people don't even think about what they think about. They don't know what they're thinking about. So stage, stage number one of helping a person change their practice is spend a while with them 
asking them, kind of cross-examining, when all of these events in your life happened in the last week, what were you telling yourself? What were you thinking? Mm -hmm. And I'll have so many people look at me and say, I don't remember. And then I'll be like, try, try to get back to what you were telling yourself. Just like, with trigger. It's just like with watching the triggers. Yes. Yes. Just being aware. It's all about awareness <laughs> and awareness is so hard, but it's less difficult now because we're more present because we're not so rushed, but getting people to think about how they're thinking and then replace the thought with three other more helpful thoughts and get them to kind of practice. I don't, I don't so much do, um, affirmation training. I, I feel like what I do in a particular session with the person is to help them find clarity on the types of actions, words, thoughts that they must um, train in order to create the results that they want. So step number one is clarity on the, the mindset that they need to have to produce the emotions and the results that they seek. And the way I practice is it's not just once a week. I have a lot of consistent interaction with these people. I, I believe in listening to podcasts that will remind you of the kind of training you believe in. I believe in um, writing in a journal. I believe in having conversation with your partner or your friend a couple times a week where you're bringing your learning to the forefront. It's like, it's like seeing a nutritionist. You go, they tell you to eat more fruits and vegetables. You're like, yes, you leave the session. You make a beautiful salad for dinner. You're like, awesome. But two days later, you seem to have forgotten the fact that you know the vegetables are good for you and you drive by in an out burger and you just go get the an out burger. You have to put yourself in a position where vegetables are in front of your face. They're, they're cut for you. They're in your fridge. So you, you can grab them and you can keep producing that training. When it comes to soul, the psyche, the spirit, the, this abstract idea of being present and chill and relaxed, you've got to make it your full-time fucking job to train sitting with yourself, to train staring at the blue sky and appreciating it, to train cutting your bite of chicken into a smaller piece such that you can actually savor it instead of just scarf it. You have to become the kind of person that is so impassioned by by living this full life by getting in touch with your own brain by wanting to feel more positive emotion that that there's no other choice for you but to train it in morning noon and night and i think part of part of my session with a person is to light them up is to kind of illuminate that they want that thing so badly they, they want to have better relationships they want to feel stronger they want to feel better in their own skin they want to stop beating the crap out of themselves and then we put the skills in place and then we're on a, like an awesome, connected, collaborative, creative, fun journey that makes a person want to practice it. I mean, I go back, I go back to sports and I know it's a little trivializing to go to sports, but why do you think athletes, why do you think they practice? Because th th there's one thing that they do that makes them good is that they practice consistently, even though it's hard. It makes them feel the way they want to feel. They're hooked. So a lot of and not react to triggers. I help them have wins. They need wins. They need to be able to produce every single day. First hour, hour they're awake, they need to be able to produce a physiological victory that hooks them to make them want to do it again. It is purely about cause and effect. And when I have a client who has that taste of that momentum, they want to practice. If they don't have momentum, they will bail on practice.
So creating, Sorry, creating the experience of momentum, uh, a winning thought or a, a re-enchantment or a new learning, a new habit in the, in the brain. Um, so I've been making a commitment to learn new things. You know that I write. I write a lot. But I've been kind of an amateur writer. Like I've written a few books, but I know deep in my heart that I'm not a great writer. And I really, really want to be a great writer. Like, but I hear myself, even when I'm in these little workshops or little groups with other people who are like professors of writing and like they're so beautiful, they're writing. So I just say to myself, I'll never be a writer. I should leave the writing to the real writers. Um, I get off and I have this, but, but then I'll be sitting and doing my practice writing and I have this moment when it's just flowing and I'm in like this pure joy. And there's such a dissonance between the programmatic goal-oriented, like you have to succeed and be the best to do the thing or why do it at all? And the, and the other, you know, person who just is a person who loves words. And so if I wanted to re-enchant myself around that, I could go in a bunch of ways. I could shift the way I think about why I'm doing it. Like it's not a, it's not a competition. There isn't an objective best. I could think about um, just putting in the discipline of showing up and doing it. And I could also put in some commitments to, of course there's room to grow and to see what best, what best really looks like, like some learning commitments. And so let's say I wanted to do that. How would I do that? Well, first of all, you just walk yourself through exactly how to coach yourself when you're, when you're struggling with voices in your head that are not, they're not inspiring and they're not helpful. Cause you just offered up two or three different perspectives on how to view your writing as a creative process and not need to be focused on the outcome. You, you offered up different ways of thinking that would have probably been more motivating. Whereas yeah. the original thought was one that you, you limited yourself, which would have led you to right. stop writing. Totally. I would stop right now if I thought that. But, and it's even more foundational. It, it goes back to what we were talking about in the beginning. I am not my output. You know, and if, I, and if I believe that, I am not my output. I'm just here to enjoy my life. A lot of things become available that weren't available before. You know? So what if I want even more foundational? Every time I have a thought that's like a shit thought about how I'm not good enough or it's not enough or I should be growing the company faster or fuck COVID. Every time I have that thought, I could say, you are not your output. You are here to enjoy your life, this beautiful given life. Done. And have a little shirt made by you that says, not your output. Or like a bracelet, like a snap or something like that. <laughs> Same thing. And, and I want to have a conversation with you about this in greater depth. I will, I will be honest. I have had so many of my own debates around this idea of enoughness. Like, like uh -huh. is getting to a point where you really believe that you are enough, is that just, should that be a given? Should that just be, should you just have that belief? Yes. I have a lot of, <laughs> I'm going to be honest, I have a lot of struggle with this, maybe because of my own upbringing, my own demons. Because there's another part of me that feels like that's, that's, that's so, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's so resigned. And as a person, oh. hold on, hold on. As a person, <laughs> like, I want to be useful. And in order for me to be optimally useful on the planet, where I am actualizing and spreading as much of my energy, like 
like if we were to define my legacy, my one life, as how much energy have I positively spread to the world, how many lives have I touched positively and negatively, I have to consider the ways in which I get the hell out of my own way to produce some kind of an output such that I leave a meaningful energetic legacy. The moment I go to like, well, if I'm, if I'm enough and I just need to enjoy my life, for me, it feels so passive and I struggle with it. Now that I do a lot of my own soul searching and I've done a lot of my own work, what I've come to realize is that if I truly take on the, the, the attitude of be present in your life, fucking love your life and know how precious it is, be right here in the current moment and do whatever you can right in here as you in a way that feels true to you, show up. It turns out that my output is exponentially more powerful. So when I come from a place of be right here, be, be right here right now, you are more than enough. You are some sort of divine. There's a reason why your divine energy has been resilient enough to show up right here, right now. And just be Lee. All of the output I want gets so much more powerful. If that made any sense. It makes sense. It's the, the thing that's done from, um, I think, very inculcated from a young age on competition is you're not enough unless it's labeled on the outside as a win. And so you always have to be improving. It's a very different energy than I'm enough. And because I'm excited, I'm excited about life and being alive, the things I'm naturally interested in, I will continue to expand and get better at because it's an emergent quality of humans to want to be creative to want to be um, impactful. And so you're, you're knowing you're enough and then trusting that what wants to unfold in you on improving, uh, on going to places others haven't gone, on letting your energy um, expand to the point where, up until the point where it won't deplete you or you won't be emptied. It's just, you can get the same things done with a very different internal experience of it. And then I wanna say about the tyranny of bigness. Yeah. That there, is, that there is this idea that unless you're really big and you're touching a lot of people, it's not valuable. And I'm, there's a woman um, I just met, and you know she's got some uh, autoimmune diseases, and so she's limited in her movement. But she tends this garden on knee pads beautifully every day. And she is, in, this, in the people that she comes into contact with and in her interaction with the earth, uh, extremely impactful to every single person who she's touching and those people are touching a, a broader sphere. And so the role that you play, it's like you're not, it's not, it, it's a chain of good. Like you never will know how one small action has rippled out in the world. So I think there's a big opportunity to unwind the having to be more and the tyranny of bigness and allow what is naturally available to each person's capacity, and then the expansion of that capacity to be more gentle. Um, like you have a ton of capacity, so no wonder you wanna live up to your own expectations. But you know, if you want, like I was fat, okay, okay, one more thing. Ah, I, I, period of fallowness. Like can you trust that if you take two weeks or three weeks and like nothing new is coming, or you're just, you know, you're struggling to find what's, what's like really wanting to be born and you just say, oh, fuck it, I'm going to go and like swim, take walks, cook, 
make chia pudding for enough for five days, you know, whatever. Like you don't, you just like, I know myself well enough in my fifties that if I just give it space, that the next genius moment will come, even if it's weeks from now. And it's, it's all stewing in this apparently superficially non-productive time. But the real creativity happens in these places when you're running in the park or like you were saying in the beginning, taking a walk. We're not widgets. There are companies who to do work from home, like to measure their, their, their employees have put spyware, like that watch their employees and how many times their eyes move away from the camera and how much they're attending and how much they're like in the virtual coffee room. And I'm like, are you kidding? Like as if your productivity is how often you're staring at the, like you, you actually do 75% of your work when you're not even actually doing the work. It's just like cognitively, like my branding, my best branding work was when I was in the shower. Definitely not clocking that. It's the best, it's the best. Yeah. Shower picking is the best. When, when, you're in, when you're in those two weeks where you're making that chia pudding, yeah. what, is it that, what is it that you tell yourself to remind yourself to just sit tight? Well, my latest thing is that there is greater good than I ever imagined possible. That my own imagination and understanding of what I'm creating or what I'm here to do is a limited thing. And that, you know, I'll never know. Like my, the best things that I've done in my life have come out of left field. So it's like, allow the mystery. Yeah. Like that there, there was, um, since you're into the Buddhist thing now, have you heard about this? So Buddhism is one of the only religions um, that has evolving scripture. Hmm. It's continually added to. And they have this idea that, I'm going to drop the name of it, that little bits of wisdom are written in like a cosmic matrix of time space. And that when that wisdom is needed by humanity, there are certain people who can go to that place in space-time and pull the wisdom down from the air and then transcribe it onto this parchment or scroll and hand it over. So there's a role in Buddhism for this transcriber of what the current uh, download is. Uh, so that allows it to be responsive to the times um, versus having a text that stuck 2,000 years ago or 1,100 years ago or whatever. And, uh, and I, I, I'm definitely more in that space. Like the mystery of what wants to come and be born through you or me is uh, more than I'll ever understand. So if I can just allow it. I love that. I yeah. Love that. So. Study more Buddhism. Yeah. Buddhism's great. I mean, there's also a lot in the mystic Christ. There's a lot in the, in the Sufis. There's a lot in Kabbalistic mystic Judaism that allows that tapping into uh, this greater sphere of creation. Like when, for example, uh, electricity was invented or the telescope was invented. Like we always know the name of the guy who was on the patent, but it was invented spontaneously all around the world by multiple people at the exact same time, like building on prior art and into the consciousness of what is needed. So can we allow for that, that we are that also, you're not like a widget. So that's what I do. It's like, okay, well, my job right now is to water the garden, make this chia pudding, go give my partner a massage, you know, Jump. Jump in that pool that probably has been clean for about 30 years. <laughs> this pool, I, I swept just for this call. Um, but yes. 
I, I hate to say this, but I have to unfortunately go because it's two o'clock. And I have a lot speaking to me, but I love hanging with you. I love how your brain works. Um, we got a little late start. I yeah. wish it was longer. And I'm going to take this video and empty it of some big spaces of sneezing and ums and ahs and clean it up and share it with the universe. Uh, thanks for talking, as usual. Lee Weinraub, the founder of Mind in Motion, get her gear, get her philosophy, hack your own brain, figure out how you can show up and enjoy your life as much as possible and still be magnificent. Love you. Bye. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me on the Rose Woman Pod. I'm Christine Marie Mason, your host. The pod is brought to you by Rosebud Woman, a company I started in the intimate skincare space. You can find our amazing products at rosewoman.com. Vegan, plant-based, pure, effective, all the good stuff. The guests and I imagine people out there when we do these shows and think, how can we bring one little bit of insight, one little lever to create more spaciousness or happiness out to the world? So if you like the pod, you know what to do. Please share it rate it, review it, subscribe, all of that stuff so that uh, we can feel your love and support and keep doing it. Have a wonderful day no matter where you're at. May the grace and joy that rests at the center of you be readily apparent. See you next time.